Welcome to the Discuss with Andy podcast. Here I am discussing a new topic with Andy. How are you? Yeah, very good, Ollie. Thank you. How are you? Uh, very excited. We've got our first guest. And who is it, Ollie? <laughs> Tom Forster. Foz to everybody else. Uh, welcome, Foz. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. No, you're very welcome. Really excited to hear what you've got to say. Uh, today we're going to be discussing um, strength and conditioning, athletic development. Uh, any other names that you want to throw in there, uh, Foz? Oh, uh, performance specialist, uh, you know, head of athletic development. You know, we give ourselves all the names under the sun, so... We are, you're welcome to every single one of them. This is definitely not my specialism. I once got told that the I went to the gym once at university and the I got told that the all-you-can-eat Chinese was downstairs. So I was like, well, that, that's made me feel really welcome. I'll come back again. Never went back. <laughs> Never went back. Uh, Andy, I'll let you kick off. Do you want to ask, ask Foz a question? Yeah, I'll start with just Foz. So just tell us where you're working at the moment and where you've worked before. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm working at Royal Holloway University. So this is my fourth academic year here yeah uh, first one was part-time and the um the other two in this one have been full-time um so i work with it usually ranges between 20 to 30 sports scholars a year um and then uh, recently in the last two years we started working with performance teams so they generally tend to be uh, men's rugby women's volleyball men's women's tennis men's women's fencing so you've got to know the basics to an awful lot of different sports yeah, you, you know, you, you do research in your own time, um, you go away and you do that, but main, mainly you get it just from talking to the athletes, like what I've learned from like the judo athletes, the archery, the fencing, stuff like that, you have to talk to them about it and they'll talk you through it, it helps if you can go and watch them, um, and, and then from that you can stem how to solve certain performance issues and things like that, so yeah. Foz, tell us about your background in sport. Um... I know a bit about it, played alongside you. Um, go on, start us at the beginning. Uh, oh, at the beginning. I uh, started doing men's artistic gymnastics when I was six. Um, competed in that until I was about 22. Um, got to British Champs in that a few times, but I was not very good and a very late developer. Um, and then started playing rugby when I was about 16. Um, very, very late, started playing like last year of secondary school. Thanks to Jake for that. And then he went to Peter Simmons College, played there, and then went away to Worcester, where I studied uh, sport and exercise science, played there, which was great, came back, um, did my distance learning um, master's degree in applied sports science, and um, Phil's, he was coaching me then, and was playing with you. Good, yeah. It was a good, good, we had a good season. Yeah. Yeah, so quite a varied background there, which is, which is yeah. n- nice here. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that puts you in good stead for for getting in touch with all these different athletes from different backgrounds. Um, key thing for me, uh, Director of Sport, we talk a lot about physical literacy. Um, can, you, can you define that for us? Can you tell us a bit more about that? I mean, the, the written definition is like, it's the motivation, confidence, uh, physical competence, knowledge, and understanding to maintain physical activity. That's the book definition of it. I don't think that's what people use it as now. I think physical literacy is kind of, morphed into other similar ones where we talk about athletic development, movement vocabulary, fundamental movement skills. So it's talking about having a firm base knowledge of like basic movements and, you know, their derivatives and progressions and, you know, how well they can move in space using their own body weight, other resistance at speed, 
certain things like that. And when you have younger athletes like that, the, the, the main thing you can do to them is expose them to a variety of movement patterns. Um, so you, when they get older and you start, you know, you start working against resistance and you're looking at progressive overload, that's something that's done at a certain age. But when you're at a younger age, the key thing you can do is like every three weeks just change something. And it can be as small as like a split squat. You just, you know, you just move to a front foot elevated split squat or a rear foot elevated split squat or a lateral squat or a Bulgarian split squat, things like that. And you do that to them and you're giving them the pieces to the puzzle that allow them to carry on doing that as they go through life and can load it as they want. What happened to jumping and landing? Jumping. Oh, <laughs> jumping, sprinting, catching, throwing, wrestling, all of that jazz. That's all the good stuff. Yeah. So that, that, does that come into fundamental movement or does that come into so physical literacy? In terms of like athletic motor skill competencies, you have, you have lower body unilateral, you have lower body um, bilateral, so that's hinging and squatting. Yeah. And then you have upper body pushing, upper body pulling, and that's horizontal and vertical. Then you have what I'd call trunk work, so that's mainly about anti-rotation and core bracing and stuff like that. Then you have jumping, landing and rebounding, so hopping and things like that. Then you have deceleration and acceleration. I'd probably chuck in there like max velocity sprinting as well. Um, and then you've got things like throwing and catching. And they've got in here grappling or grasping. So I'd probably put loaded carries in that and to a certain extent wrestling. I and feel... within that one, you'd have rolling as well. That's where the gymnastics would probably come into it. I can feel Andy getting really excited about all these different terminologies. I was lost at squat, so Andy, go on. <laughs> I think you do need to uh, you need to explain to uh, some people unilateral and bilateral. Uh, yeah. Just, and give us an example of exercises: some that would be unilateral, some that would be bilateral. I know you mentioned bilateral squat. Yeah. Um, talk us through the unilateral as well. So unilateral just means sing, single limbed, um, bilateral um, two limbed. So um, obviously, like you know, not a lot of sport. The, the reason why they they do that is it's split in here is the fact that not a lot of sports are performed on two legs. And there's been a huge movement on, you know, the S&C Twitter sphere of a movement away from bilateral, like, um, lifts because, you know, not a lot of sports are done on two legs, but you can shift the most amount of weight on two legs. So I tend to do what I always do, crystal of everything, and I just do both. Um, and so, you know, that's just single leg stuff. So like you said, with the split squat, it's literally just like a split squat is a lunge where you're not moving. So a lunge is a dynamic split squat. So you're moving forwards, you're moving backwards. A split squat is when you're in a split stance and you just go up and down. And then you can change it however you see fit. Um, but not just with load. You can do it under speed. You can do it, you know, you can do it with pauses, tempos, things like that. Is there not a safety uh, aspect with doing it bilateral before unilateral? Um... I mean, from a safe, like, that depends, like, if you're doing body weight or very light loading, there's probably not, a, like, as soon as you take them through at body weight, um, then there's there's nothing wrong with potentially loading it a little bit or, do, or adding speed or impact, something like that. So, um, not not so much, because that's the key thing we'll probably get into later is you talk about stuff in the gym and people get worried about it, but they're going to go out on the playground and run around, jump around, land on one leg anyway, and that's going to be more impact than they'll ever really experience in the gym. So it really is, as long as their form is good, we're, yeah. and, we'll, and we'll talk about that later. Andy, we're just about to jump in, go. Yeah, I just wondered whether there's any difference between, what, uh, between the genders in terms of their sort of unilateral movements. Um, we read a lot about girls' knee injuries. Every time I decide to watch the Super League netball, someone does an ACL as far as I can see. So do you have to 
portraying the genders in slightly different ways. You, you can have, like you do with a like there's a lot of things that go into how you base a training program, and yeah, gender does come into it, especially in field court court based sports where multi-directional movement is is a key component. Um, girls and, and, and women have like a wider Q angle, so their hips are wider, which means their legs can come in, so that means their potential to valgus at the knee or the knee go inward, which is um, you know um, decelerating and valgusing the knee um, is a, you know um, uh, a key like part of rupturing your ACL. Um, so basically just drilling motor patterns where the knee has correct tracking is one thing to do, which you can do. Um, you know, doing single leg landings and things like lunges and split squats and single leg sit to stands and stuff like that. But then you need to improve your, the musculature around the joint from top down and bottom up. So you have to look at what the foot's doing. Um, but then you also have to look at what's going on in the hip. And I remember working with a hockey girl and she was just standing there. I mean, my coach were looking at the back and her knees were just kind of going inwards. And then we said, squeeze your glutes as hard as you can. And she did. And her knees just went into what we would consider normal. So how you address like the glutes and the quads and improving the musculature around the joints, that's massively going to protect what they do. And then if you marry that to correct mover patterns, um, then you're, you're doing everything you can to, to, help, to help them protect that. Does there need to be an element of strength work there then? Strength work's really important, yeah. So, for instance, like, I've got, um, I work with a girl at the moment. I mean, I, 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 I did before, you know, COVID and everything, so I, I barely got a chance to in between lockdowns. But she's, she plays for a Super League team, um, and I think it's Saracens. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, like, we get her doing, she hip thrusts, she barbell hip thrusts, like, quite heavy. And the brilliant thing about that is, you know, it's very easy to coach. You can load it very heavily. Um, the, the risk of danger is very low, mm. um, and what you're doing is, is you're having a direct impact on the glutes, which from you know top down dictates what the knee's going to do. Yeah. Um, so you know we do that, and then we do a lot of unilateral stuff as well. So we you know we'll do um, like heavy split squats and stuff like that. Um, but um, I mean that's just an example. From my from my understanding, over the last three years or so, when I've kind of I'm really trying to take an interest in it it seems to be a massive jigsaw puzzle and if you don't look after one bit it, you could do as many one one-legged landing uh landing opportunities as you ca- as you like but if you don't have the strength you, you're not it's not do it's not you're not going to get the benefits as if you did both of them and then I'm sure there's a third part in there that needs to come in and I'm sure there's another part that needs to come in and that will then give you almost the complete athlete um I just want to come back to what Andy said about um, maybe the gender difference. Do you find you get a bigger buy-in from one or the other? It depends on the age in which you work with them. Okay. And if you can, you know, it's hard, sometimes, sometimes it's harder with boys. They see things on Instagram and YouTube and stuff like that, or they've been to the, they've been to the gym for a year with their mates and they think they know everything, and then you kind of have to break that back down. That's not all of them. That's just, you know, not averagely. That's sometimes what they're like. And then sometimes with the girls, they come in and like I've had like three or four, at least three or four scholars this year in between lockdowns. And they're like, I've never been in a gym. And I'm like, perfect. Like, I can build you up however I want you to. That's, that's fine. Um, and you, you can teach them solid training habits because they don't know any better. They don't know any different. So they're just going to do what you tell them to. They do have a confidence issue. 
But the best thing is, is when you work at university, you have them for at least three years. So you look at where they started in their freshers year and then you look at them in their final year and you can show them the numbers of what they're lifting differently um and you know their sprint times and their jump heights and stuff like that and you see their confidence go up and you know and then by the end of it like they wouldn't want to go to a general you know a, a public gym on their own and in the holidays they're going off and doing their own stuff which they wouldn't have had beforehand yeah those blank canvases can be really crucial can't they yeah. i mean certainly one of the things we try and do is um we're trying to get our all of our students, boys, girls, uh, in the gym as early as possible before they get an ego and before they get a complex. And therefore, we can then teach them good habits so that if they choose to later on in life, actually, they're not the kid in the corner standing there with a stick doing squats because they're relearning everything. Actually, I know how to do this. So I can I can crack on if that's all right. It's quite hard work uh, teaching boys that there's more to it than bench pressing. Oh, Christ, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, all of them want to bench and belly and then want to squat. Um, no, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's a big problem. Like, when I worked at Cranley, they pretty much, they were at this time where s was becoming more and more prominent at rugby when I worked at that private school. And um, I, I was given the, like you said, I was given the 14 to 15-year-olds and giving them good training habits. And then after I left and took the job at London Irish, I was getting feedback from the SNC coach who's still there, and he was like, "These boys coming through into the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the college age, the ones that I worked with previously and had gone up. He was like, these guys are absolutely cracking on. It's awesome. So that's something that they carried on doing now. Is instead of waiting, they just go down and they they take the rugby boys, create a really good core group of them, and then they just take them through incredibly basic, very um, variable exercises that you change every two to three weeks, but you give them a very big firm base." So what sort of exercises would be in that sort of, uh, that, those early programs? Oh, so like, I think they had like a 50 minute to an hour session. You do like, oh, I'm trying to remember now, it's a long time ago, but um, you do like an elaborate warm up. So you do the, you know, the normal warm up that you would do, um, you know, making sure that they're, you know, activated and potentiated and mobilized and all that. But then what you do is you dribble that into like, it should seamlessly flow into the next thing. So you could go into um, like some explosive exercises. So whether it be box jumps, medicine ball throws, um, band resisted sprints which will then go into the next phase and then we start doing either some speed or agility work because we were in a sports hall and we just took a load of dumbbells through um, because the, the older boys are in the actual performance suite so we took a load of dumbbells out um, and then they do some agility drills that I'd made up and stuff like that and then we or we do some straight line sprint work um, and then that and I go right that's that done and that was about 20 to 25 minutes and then we do like a lower body um I think we had to divvy it up because the dumbbells, but I maybe split them in two. And one of them would do um, lo- like a series of lower body exercises and the other would do a series of upper, upper body exercises. And then we finished on trunk all together. And is that similar to what you'll do with the girls at university who are new to it? So in the group setting, yeah. I mean, it depends on the sport, again. Um, I'm not counting the COVID year because that kind of screwed everything up a little bit. And I don't think that's a good example. Um, but no, yeah, with the volleyballers, specifically we didn't do a lot of landings because the the trick that a lot of people would fall into is like they do a lot of jumping and landing so we should do jumping and landing when it's actually like well actually are we just adding stress on top of stress are we just doing more of what they're already doing and i think you can take that to a line and potentially go over so i think it's probably just little and often making sure that they're doing it and doing it right um but mainly what because that's the thing about snc is if if they if that if what's being taken care of is happening on the field or the court the pitch don't try and immediately act, apply, apply all that on somewhere else. 
just supplement what they're already doing. That's good, makes sense. Do you want to explain what ramp is for our listeners? Uh, yeah, so the ramp protocol means rise, activate, mobilise, potentiate. Um, so my generic, if I was going to take um, the the rugby team at Royal Holloway through um, a warm, an on-pitch warm-up, it would generally look like, um, um, you know, we, we do like a few lengths of jogging of like 10, 15, 20 metres. Then we go straight into skipping, straight into side, skipping both sides, straight into karaoke both sides. Then we go into like... Um, forward lunges, then into side-to-side squat. Then we do some single-leg RDLs, like, as we're moving. So we're just constantly moving up and down um, between one line and the other, doing these movements. Um, And then um, we maybe do some, like, crab walks or some bear crawls. Um, And then um, maybe break some time there to do some stretch stuff, potentially. But I usually like to go through that. They've already done that in the squats and the bear crawls and stuff like that. And then we go into some broad jumps or some vertical jumps or some single leg hops, um, hops in a box or hops for distance. So we're, like I said earlier, we're going from the warm up into plyometric and explosive exercises. And then that will seamlessly go into some, some into acceleration and speed work. And that's, that's the RA, RAMP all in one. Yeah. <laughs> nice. How long ideally would that warm up last, Foz? Uh, so before we get into the sprint work, I mean, you know, you want to, you want to raise the heart rate. So you want them to be doing it, you know, reasonably sharpish, but with good attention to detail. So like eight, eight to 10 minutes, maybe. Um, yeah. I would have a little bit of an argument with my daughter who's an endurance runner. Yeah. They will have these warm ups that last for about an hour. Uh, And I just can't get my head around why you would do that. to me, it doesn't make sense, but that's how it's always been done. And they will often get to a cross-country three hours beforehand to walk the course as well. And then you hang around getting cold. Then you do your laborious warm-up. Um, how, how, how intense is her warm-up? Uh, in my opinion, not intense enough. Mm, but over a long period of time? But over a long period of time, yeah. But you don't win the event in the warm-up? No. But it's very hard to change... Uh, old school deep rooted ideas yeah what would you like to see Andy I'd like to see the ramp protocol followed I'd like things to be shorter and sharper and I'd like that potentiation phase to be done properly rather than just a couple of strides at the end fair enough so Foz when we talk about training young athletes are there some key phases in an athlete's life where you need to be training them in a certain way um so generally when you coach youth athletes, you, it's called a peak height velocity. Um, so you have pre-PHV and circa PHV and post-PHV. And um, what you have is you have athletes, so pretty much what that means is whether they're about to go through puberty, whether they're going through puberty and whether they, they, they finish. And you can do that doing um, making a load of measurements. And there's a PHV calculator. You can look it up online. It's like um, weight, standing height, sitting height, and um, a few other things. And if you monitor that over a few months you can you can kind of judge um whether that they're, they're going to go through stuff like that um when you're pre-pubertal when you do strength work because of the lack of testosterone most strength changes are going to be neurological um you can see obviously like you know they can still like potentially like lose lose like fat through that just by exercising more but in terms of musculature and putting it on it's going to be pretty minimal most strength gain is going to be neurological and then when 
when they're about to go through puberty or when they're going through puberty, they get flushed through with testosterone, which means they can they, they can put on musculature more. So the emphasis of training changes. But there's a caveat to that. When athletes go through puberty or going through it, or not athletes, anyone, you get what's called adolescent awkwardness. So it's when, like, you, you might know, yeah, physical adolescent awkwardness. So practically what that means is, is, like, because their limbs are suddenly longer and they're taller and stuff like that, um, they don't move as well as they, 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 they did or, or they will. Um, they can stiffen up, um, you know, they lose coordinate, like, like, they lose, lose coordination and mobility and stuff like that. So talking to a lot of, like, SNC coaches who work in, like, academies, especially football academies that work with, like, you know, like under 12s, that's how... Yeah young they work you know um they you can take two approaches to it one you back off on loading um and you drill um like mobility work and um like just um full-on range of movement and technical quality of the movement um and the, and the other way is you can do that as well but you can still load so some people like to be very conservative and drop off for a bit um that you might call that call it by ear it might be depends on how you know how bad they get um because um and then the other one like it could not be a lot and you just address it so des ryan at arsenal if you want to listen to some of his stuff really 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 good um he's head of the academy there of like athletic performance and what they do there is, is very very good um and and i think they they back off they do a lot of like um like uh, movement uh quality work but then they'll also still do a little bit of loading Okay, so they're more of a movement quality than they are the loading. What about for girls? I mean, when they go through that peak high velocity phase, are they benefiting from extra testosterone as well? Is it more difficult to get that musculature change with them? So when you work with um, girls, like the constant fear is that, like, if you lift up a dumbbell, you're going to turn into an absolute monster, and it's <laughs> something that is so prevalent um, that it's just a it's just a complete myth. Um, the only time that someone is going to turn into, you know, like an absolute monster if you're a girl is if, if one, you'll take it, you know, you've been doing, you've got a training, sleeping and eating regime that you've been following for 10 plus years and or, you know, you're taking a healthy dose of drugs. Um, and then and then the other, the only other one is if you're like 0.1% of the population, you're a massive responder to, to, to resistance training. So the chance that that's ever going to happen is very, very low. Um, but you know, you have, you, they get surrounded by the fact that if you lift weight, you're going to turn very, very muscly, and it's just, you know, their 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 makeup, their their genetic makeup, it just doesn't predispossess them to, to put on a huge amount of musculature like it does with men. So have we, um, have we just busted our first myth here? I, I think so. Yeah. So so to be strong does not mean you have to be big. No, and I think even in men's sports, when you work in sports which have like weight bands, so like when I work with judo athletes, you know, and, and gymnasts, um, I, I worked with a gymnast um, last year, and you know, I mean, gymnast isn't weight banded, but there's, you know, like a competing weight, and you have to just make sure that what you're doing with them isn't going to like, like adversely affect their, their competition um, and their performance, so you just have to make sure that, you know, the volume and the, and the reps and the sets and how you, you, you program for them isn't going to lead to muscle mass. And that, that just, you know, you can see that, you can weigh them, you can monitor it and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it, it's, you can definitely get stronger without getting bigger because, you know, it happens all the time in boxing and MMA and stuff like that. 
it does, there does seem to be some research out at the moment which says for endurance athletes that if you run and do proper strength training, you'll get the strength training benefits without that increase in muscle mass, which strikes me as a bit of a win-win. Yeah, uh, massively. Um, that came out uh, yeah over the last few years. I think one of the lead researchers, he was at St. Mary's, and oh, I can't remember his name now. I've actually Blake seen Rowe, Rowe, isn't it? Richard Blake yeah, Rowe. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and... Um, you know, he, he. You know, doing. I mean, the thing is, it's similar to like when, when, you know, when we're talking about it's, it's little and often. So because of the sheer running volume that you do, you're doing, you don't want to severely detract from that. So it's probably just two, two sessions a week, and it's probably just like 45 minutes. You know, 40 minutes post warm up, and they'll probably do two, maybe three lower body exercises, predominantly like m- maybe bilateral and unilateral. And then maybe one or two upper and some trunk work, and and, and that'll be it, unless they have any previous injury history, and 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 that's it, just short and sweet, little and often. And actually, the weight they will lift should be heavier than you would imagine a uh, an endurance runner should be working with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Are there, are there any issues with girls and bone stress, and any issues with boys' weight training at a young age and growth plate damage and things like that? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like in terms of let's go with the the. the, the the girls ones first like in terms of bone like bone density it's so important that girls one of the key things about lifting heavy weight um is the fact that it can um add to bone mineral density um and i think eric cressy who is an american he works with um pitchers um does a lot of work with um nba um with um um with baseball pitchers over there and um i think he did like uh, uh, a study on himself when he was at university and a dexa scanner which can um, find out like what your weight and what your bone density is. And he did powerlifting for three years while I was at university. And he looked at when he first did it, and when he when he last did it, and his bone density had gone up. Um, and a key thing for that, just from a health perspective, is obviously when women go through um, the menopause and they can then start um, suffering with osteoporosis. If you've got them lifting weights, not all the way up to that, but if they can get what they can from resistance training and build up good bone mineral density, they're not going to be. Well, hopefully they're going to deaden the impact of them, you know, being the little old granny that fell over and broke her hip. So from a health perspective, it's very, very important. And I think even in, in old age, there was a study that said that leg strength, there was a di- direct correlation between leg strength and onset of dementia. Now, we don't know if, um, you know, correlation, you know, cause causation, we don't know. But that, that I think that was in the study that came out. Wow. I think the other sort of while we're on the subject of myth busting is obviously you get told a lot. And it's still sort of view that goes about that young people shouldn't weight train and it's dangerous. Is there any evidence for that? Um, no, no, there isn't. I mean, you, if you want to like entertain yourself, like if you want to rile up an S and C coach, you go on social media and you see a, a, a video of a kid lifting very safely, and the comment section of absolute no ones. Um, just saying, like, well, that kid's gonna, like, you know, have no spine in ten years, or will need a hip replacement at forty. My 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 old man had a hip replacement at forty nine, and he didn't lift weights. He just played loads of sport and was in the army. So you never know. Maybe lifting weights could have offset that. We don't know. But you know, that's just you know a complete myth, and it's been discounted in so much literature. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, it needs to go. Can we can we put a caveat in there? As long as the form is correct, it's not. Well, that's the thing. From an S and C perspective, 
I'd always be, you know, very conservative. And what you do is you do sub, very, very submaximal weight. You do lots of reps to drill the motor pattern, and you only progress it once they've got it absolutely nailed down. Mm. Now that's the same thing you do with, with with an athlete who's eighteen or twenty-four. You wouldn't just keep saying chuck weight on. Um, but you know, and then the main thing for them is just learning the movement. And like you've already said, then you're not going to see huge increases of strength, and the stuff that you do see is just going to be neurological. It's mostly just about movement patterning and, and drilling that, so that when it comes to when they're in, you know, circuit PHP, when they're going through puberty and post, they can hit the ground running and really crack on instead of you then teaching it to them. Because mm. there's when like, we talk about, sorry, Fuzz, when we talk about neurological, what we're talking about here is the rate of motor unit firing and the synchronicity as well. So it's the ability to recruit more muscle fiber that you've got rather than actually building strength per se. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So in my terms, that's efficiency over, over strength. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you're you, making the you most can, of what you've got. You can get stronger by increasing um, muscle muscle cross sectional area, so getting bigger, and that gives you the potential to lift more weight. Yes. But you you you, you can then get stronger by like. Uh, Improving like uh, neuromuscular aspects of like like rate coding and and like rate synchronization, um, rate synchronization and 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 motor unit recruitment and stuff like that. And predominantly, like Fieldy said, like when you're working with people who don't want to put on weight but want to get stronger, that's what you're going to have to work with. And you just dict- you just tweak the program to re- to to make the to to get the, the goal that you want. Foz, we hear a lot about long-term athlete development. How does your SNC programs fit into that? Can you explain what uh, LTAD is first, and then maybe move on? Um, yeah, long-term athlete development is um, is a model which um, it ranges from. I think it's quite a confusing model, as Phil, you and me have just said, but it goes from eight to about twenty-one um, in terms of age, yeah. and then that's on the top, and then down the side you have a load of physical qualities. And then what it states is going across it that there are windows of opportunity in which you can chase adaptation on specific physical qualities. Um, it's got critiqued. I mean, it still holds value because, you know, to a certain extent, there's parts of it which are right. But because you're, because puberty is so individualized to specific people when they go through that, that you can't paint everyone with the same brush that this is going to work for you at this age. Now, they probably, the people that came up with the model probably acknowledge that um but yeah it's very hard to do that so i think it's more like if you're working in a cat and a rugby academy and you've got like 40 boys that's probably going to be handy where you have a few coaches and they can start noticing things and being like okay you know these guys are circle or becoming post you know peak height velocity you know we can really like crack on and, and do some other stuff now while these guys are going through like i don't know an extended um adolescent awkwardness so we can start we, we can drill some more movement patterns do a load of mobility work um and stuff like that and you know you're very late developers so they can still kind of keep doing stuff but you're just not going to expect the gains yet because there's still um there's, there is still going to be um a neuro, uh, neuromuscular that they're going to be getting because they haven't gone they're not they haven't started puberty yet so is that is it would it be better um better related to training age more than more than chronological age. Yeah, so you, you kind of going into bio banding, aren't you? Um, yeah, kind of. So um, 
it is very difficult, especially when you're coaching lads and they see their best friend and he's getting to crack on and he's you know he's squatting eighty, and he's still goblet squatting a twenty four k dumbbell, and that's really hard from a coach perspective to explain to them. Um, you know, you're just not you're not there yet, and it's not because you're not trying; it's just because it's not the right time, and no one can control that. And you know, your time will come, and we can crack on, and, and, and you, you can make up for it in no time and stuff like that. So that is difficult to manage. Um, but yeah, it is something that requires you know, is a bit of an art to it. There's a bit of a science, like you know, a social science to navigating that in an athlete's. Um, in, in, their, in their journey, you're not only dealing with the teen, uh, the physical awkwardness, but also the teenage awkwardness as well. Yeah, wanting to be like their friends, but not being able to be yet. No, there was there was a there was a, a, a hockey girl I with. She's now in the the England squad, and she was. They were like, "Well, you have to do S and C." She was in the the national age groups pathway, and um, she used to like she used to, to hate S and C. She used to be like, I don't know why I'm here. This was when I was like my first year intern or something. I think I only coached her for about 18 months. And um, there was about four other girls. I don't know what happened to them, but she went all the way through. And um, she was like, I don't really know why I'm here. I don't I don't see the point in it. You know, I could be doing other stuff. And um, <laughs> the SNC coach was just there like, mate, she's yours. Just like, I, 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 can't be, I can't be dealing with it. I was like, okay. And over like about two, three week period, I managed to just be like, look, we're, we're going to indirectly make you a better athlete. You know, if I took someone of your skill level, if there was two of you and one of you didn't do S&C and one of you did and you were both the exact same technical, tactical mas- mastery, then the stronger one would be better because you'd be more efficient. You could physically dominate better. Yeah. And she was just there like, that makes sense. And it was, it was that really quick buy-in from that... Um, and she was immediately sold. And then I was getting um, my boss when I left and gone to Irish, and was like, "Mate, she's cracking on now in like upper sixth and stuff like that." And then obviously she's, I don't know if she's at university now. I can't remember, but yeah, she's in in the senior women's squad. And um, yeah, they're always putting video videos up of her lifting now. Nice, good, good success story. We like that. Um, do you do any tests? Do you have any favourite tests? Any tests that are are more valuable than others, uh, any tests so, to avoid? Testing testing can... I like training is testing and testing is training. I like to incorporate as much as possible. So I don't like doing like big one, met, one, max, uh, one rep max days. I don't like doing that because what I like to do is I like to use like a rep max calculator. So if I was using, if I was using my athletes, I'd set them like four sets of five and the weight that they did for a set of five... I would then use a one rep max calculator, which you can just find online or an Excel or anything like that, and it would tell me their predicted one RM. So, which is you know you know plus or minus, it's going to be around about there. But it's much better than having like a massive one RM based week, um, which you know they might not be feeling well that week, and then for the for the rest of the program, you're basing their program off something on a week that they weren't feeling it. Um, so I mean, like I like to do in terms of strength testing, that's how I like to do um, do that. Um, jump testing at Raw Holloway, we've got a jump mat, really easy. It's a black rubber mat and it's got time pressure sensors, so it knows when you're on it, it knows when you're off it, and it knows when you're back on it. Then you use a formula on Excel to convert the arbitrary units that it turns out into centimeters. So you can do, um, on that, you can do like just normal counter movement jump, and then you can do like a, you know, a squat jump. So you take out the sh- stretch shortening, so they squat down and they wait for two seconds and then jump, so it's concentric only. Hmm. 
and then based from that you can find out whether they're you know they're very elastically driven or whether they're very force dominant and then you can also do like death jumps on them um so you can drop down and jump off and then look at how long they're on the map for and that's another way of looking at elasticity are there any things you might use to decide when you move somebody's training on yeah yeah so i mean it's all about their journey so like um when they're all sports are different so you know they're seniors at different ages so like in gymnastics you're a senior at 18 um and in rugby you, you can be seen as like you know you, you might be in senior academy between the ages of 18 and 21 but you could be playing first team so um a guy i went and saw who was at the time i think it was neil potts he was like head of snc of all of scottish rugby and he was like, my, my number one job is that when they leave the academy, they are physically able to tussle with the big boys. That's my number one job. Um, so depending on the sport and when their class is a senior, that kind of dictates where they are. But it's conflated by their previous training history. So they could come to me in their first year at 18 and be like, I'm going to be a senior in a year. And I'm like, you don't have any training history. That, that will dictate what we're doing. So suddenly, you know, they're new to it. And it just means their training is just going to, extend over a longer period of time um one of the scholars that i work with beach volleyballer he came to me he'd already been doing you know he's a tas athlete already represented the country as a senior even though he was an under 23 with his twin brother um very very good um and you know he'd already done he'd already had a training history of like a year two years um and then over about eight months we managed to he, he, he was like you know what you just do all my snc and i was like okay and in in about an eight month period from about yeah from about september until january he put on 10 kilos of lean mass his jump height went up five centimeters and his speed times dropped in a 20 meter sprint using um speed gates so we knew that the lean mass he put i mean i could see it and he could see it the lean mass that he was putting putting on was conducive to his sport and obviously he was 1920 so he knew that it wasn't wasn't puberty because that's a key thing in SNC and youth athletes is how do you know the program's working? Is it your gym work or is it the puberty? Because mm. they're going to improve whatever they, you know, whatever. Yeah. So um, we worked with him. We knew it was working. We knew that it was conducive mass that he was putting on because his jump height was going up and his speeds were going down. Because the trick could be to just get him bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's why we consistently weigh him and jump test him and sprint him so that we know what is the optimum performance weight. So he's currently sitting at like 82 kegs, I think, um, and very, very, very strong. And how tall is he? How tall? Oh, not very tall at all. Like, uh, that's his, his key issue. I can't remember. I think he's six foot, maybe just under. So, you know, there's some there's some volleyballers from all over the, the beach volleyballers all over the world who are like six foot six and then arm span. Um, yeah. So the, the main problem we had, his, because, you know, we did his general physical preparation you know, we indirectly made him a better athlete. And then it got to the point, because of his previous training history, we were like, right, what can we do specifically to, to have a direct impact on his sport performance? And the key limiting issue for him was that he wasn't tall. So he has to work harder at the front of the net than a tall person. So first of all, what we did was we, we made him jump higher. So we were doing, um, you know, he was training a lot, but he, for some reason, he could tolerate a lot of volume. So he was training like, he was like lifting like four times a week, five times a week. He was doing two upper, no, he was doing two lower, one upper, and then a power session. Um, and now he's doing two upper, you know, in the off season, he does two upper, two lower, and then a power session. 
whilst doing some beach volleyball with his dad, who's his coach's twin brother, just to keep ticking over. And um, so we, the first thing we did was we made him very, very strong. And we tried to make him, you know, and using vertical integration, we worked a lot of capacities at the same time. But the main thing was getting him strong while still doing plyometrics and strength work. And now we're getting to a point now, he jumped like a 76 on the just jump mat in arbitrary units, which is a 66 centimetre jump with no arms, just hands on hips, just jump. Um, so now the thing to move on to, if we had force plates, um, which we do, I just haven't got around to getting the time to testing him, is how quickly can he jump that high? So we've got him strong enough and explosive enough to jump that high and that he's jumping that high consecutively now. The next thing would be to how high, how quickly can he jump that high? Because as you know in sport, um, you know it's not how well you can do something, it's how how quickly and how well you can do it. Can you get to the ball first? So that's the next thing that we've got to move on to now. That sounds interesting. I like that challenge, Foss. It's good, good detail as well. I like the fact that you've gone into all this detail. It keeps me up at night. That's why he's here, you see. That's why he's a special guest. Foz, me and Andy have been uh, discussing over the last few weeks off off record uh, about specialisation and generalisation. Andy, have you got a question around that for Foz? In terms of developing young athletes, are you a believer that to be successful you must specialise in one sport at a very early age? Bearing in mind, Foz, you're a gymnast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. early specialisation sport, or do you think generalisation is the way to go? I think there's about three sports that are required to be an early specialisation sport. Um, Name, and going, Name and shame. Name and shame. Gymnastics. Um, diving, usually are ex-gymnasts. Uh, ballet, potentially. Um, sports like that tend to be early specialisers. But I remember going to a, I mean, I've always said this and I've heard it and then I went to a strength conditioning course before I got accredited and it, I think his name was, was it Joel Brannigan and he's he's worked in rugby union and rugby league and he works at university now and me and him were talking in a lunch break and because I was coaching and doing gymnastics, uh, I think I'd retired then but I was still coaching and he went, oh, when my son's old enough, I'm putting him straight into gymnastics. And I was like, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I've always championed that. He was like, no, it's the best thing, you know, fundamental movement patterns from the ages of like four, you know. And then usually what happens is the sport deselects people. <laughs> so you know, if they become too tall, they then struggle to do the skills, and they deselect themselves from the sport. I remember taking my daughters to gymnastics and not being very happy about the whole way that it was coached even at that very young age it wasn't about participation it was about spotting the ones who were going to move up um, and she's 16 now so we're not even talking particularly long time ago with that so good gymnastics clubs i mean good gymnastics clubs will do two things one the money is in recreational gymnastics so the participation side that's where the money is elite level gymnastics specifically men's and women's and then you have the other ones like trampolining and tumbling and acro and aerobics and stuff like that. They're very specifically run. They're, they're run usually at a loss because they take, because they, you know, men's, men's gymnastics train 24 hours plus a week. So the coach has to be there for 24 hours plus a week. So the clubs are rinsing money on paying these high level coaches to be in there for that amount of time. 
Um, but the recreation will subsidise that because, you know, they're doing, you know, reasonably basic gymnastics, but they're in there in absolute numbers. So that's a lot of money that they can, and, you know, it's termly. Like the gymnastic, basic gymnastics club where I was at, you know, they had waiting lists for, for you know, for recreational gymnastics classes. But, and that kind of, like, balances out. But, yes, the elite level coaches are always looking around being like, that kid, he, he's got it. And then you invite them in. And then you create a squad. I, I got a squad of four and five-year-olds, and um, there was about five or six of them. And I worked with them for five years. And right at the end, they went to uh, national finals. And now one of them is in the—I mean, he's only eleven. One of them is in the GB development squad, and the other one who's eleven is in the England development squad. So this is gymnastics. Is not only an early specialisation sport; it's a really early specialisation sport. What are, so say some of these boys you've got who are 11 in the GB squad, will they be playing any other sports elsewhere? Oh, yeah. Like, I would never say you need to do less of that. I mean, because I, I did. I mean, it might be the reason why I wasn't as good. But, you know, they, <laughs> I, you know, one of them, he, his dad loved rugby and he, he would play rugby. And actually, so would the other one. They were both nutters, though. But, yeah, they loved playing rugby. Um, and then the other one I had, he loved playing football. And then the other one I had, he liked playing football. I think he also liked diving and swimming. So I would never deter them from doing sport. When I was in secondary school, I think I did like a different secondary sport every, 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 every year. So I think I did like a year of basketball, a year of badminton, a year of cricket. And then the last year I did rugby. And then I just kind of really, really, really liked that. Um, and then carried on with it. When you look at your beach volleyball player you've been talking about, has he got a good general sporting background? Or Because you mentioned his dad was his coach, he plays with his yeah. brother. Has all the focus been on volleyball? Um, I would probably say yes, but the boy, he, he's very good at basketball. He loves basketball, loves watching it, and he loves playing it. Now, obviously, that's because there is a lot of transfer between the two sports. Yeah. Um, the fact that he can jump high and that, you know, he's... An outlaw in the fact that he is a very strong, very powerful boy, um, and uh, you know, I mean, he's in his last year at uni now. But I, I'm guessing he did play other sports. But I think he was always, always beach volleyball first. Him and his twin brother, because in beach volleyball it's two v two, they they always you know train on training, try and compete together. And his dad's his dad's one of their coaches. So most uh, most children growing up, any parents listening to this, we're saying that kids is much better if they play a whole range of sports. Or better that they focus on one. Um, I think if a kid has a favoured sport that he or she loves, then it's fine to devote a lot of time to that. But I think it's out of the parents' interest as well as the child's to expose them to other ones because you never know unless you do it. Um, you never know that you might try another sport and then suddenly the sport that you liked because you were good at it, you're actually better at another one, and therefore you might like that one more. Um, so yeah, I'd always, even if it's like in summer holidays and you go on multi-sport camps, you know, so your parents don't have to see you in the day, um, and you send them off there, like that's it, that's, that's brilliant. And, and to do that, and I'd always encourage that. Um, but I mean, you look like that's a massive argument in, in America in sports is the multi-sport versus the, the specialized sport. And then what's really interesting in American football at university and high school and stuff like that is specifically American football, like the wide receivers, when the, Amer when the American football season's done, they all sprint. And the O-line, the big guys, when, they, when their American football season's done, a lot of them throw like shot put, javelin. So, and they have, especially the athletics, that has a really good knock-on effect to the, to, to the American football because 
the wide receivers and the running backs, they run more and they learn how to sprint properly and they do more um, plyometrics and they can do more like ollie lifting and stuff like that. And then the, the big guys, you know, they're, you know, they end up doing a lot of Olympic lifting and even more plyometrics and stuff like that as well to help get better at like shot put. So that works out really, really well. So complementary sports would obviously is, is, is a nice way of doing it. Um, there's a tradition within schools that they play, you know, certain sports in certain seasons. Um, some of the things that I've been listening to recently have said, why would you stop a kid playing a sport that he enjoys? If you if he's training two or three times a week in a sport that he enjoys and he only, he only does that, and you're encouraging to to try four sports a week, where you're asking somebody to train more than than they may be if they're training in one sport constantly and specialising. Um, which is interesting because it was their own research that they were talking down. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm watching this space very carefully um, as I think there might be a, a, a tide turning. Um, but I, I'm with you, Foz. I think if you can, if you can, you don't know until you try. You don't so, know until you try. And it was really hard when I worked at a private school. It's like, unfortunately... You know, not all the time, but some of the athletes that were very good in one sport were also the ones that were very who were in the first team or around the first team in another sport. Yeah. And specifically, you know, you're going rugby in in the first term into boys hockey in the second term. Um, and if you and then you know, it got to the point where if you weren't in the first and second team for hockey, the rugby coach would be like, right, if you guys aren't playing first second team hockey, then we're, we're practicing sevens for Boston Park. Yeah. And then hockey, they tried to train all year round. Um, and you know just the sheer amount of volume of training and it's hard in a private school especially a boarding one because what they do is and it's really hard from an S&C perspective because you have to train that fine line about giving them enough that they're going to adapt to something but not giving that you're not adding on more stuff that they're going to be stressed because their their school days like a program from like sometimes six in the morning until eight in the evening because the more busy they are the more like they're not going to be like mucking around so <laughs> they're being they're doing so much activity daily from sometimes like Monday to like Saturday afternoon, that you know, are you just adding more and more? It's also it's much easier, isn't it, that public school setting because you haven't got to rely on your parents to drive you to lots of different venues to do lots of different things. How the that, other half live? Yeah, that's handy. Yeah. And uh, Foz, I think we've got some quick fire questions for you, okay. or at least some phrases, and we just want a quick response. Uh, I'll go. I'll go first, Foz. Um, the word beasting. Um, Quick fire, Foz. Good way to, good way to get tired. Um, and um, you know, you know, if if you need to, you know, shed some unwanted fat, and you, you want to maybe improve your aerobic base, um, but otherwise, it's just getting tired. Foz, that was too long-winded and very politically correct. <laughs> Andy. Okay, one for me. CrossFit. Um, at the elite level, very interesting to watch as a training modality. Not great. Any sports that shouldn't weight train. <laughs> he is still Chess. there, by the way. Chess. <laughs> um, on field or performance gym. Gym. Yeah, as, as in do do the athletic development work, the strength and conditioning work. Would you rather it on field or in the performance gym? If you have a 
big enough performance gym that you can get most of it done in there, that would be ideal. That would be the dream. Should everybody be able to do a backflip? <laughs> Uh, no, just uh, retired ex gymnast. Right. And I don't. I don't even do them sober anymore. So. Uh, drugs in sport. Uh, oh, well, I listened to that podcast. Um, I mean, if you want to see some outrageous records being broken, then you know, crack on. But also, if you want to see people dying, at, uh, athletes dying at a young age. Yeah. Talent or practice. Um, both. You can't fight genetics, um, but nurturing goes a hell of a long way. Okay, and a last one. What what advice would you give a ten year old you? Question everything you're given to do, because if you can't, if if the person giving it to you can't explain why you're doing it, there's no point doing it. Sounds like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> No, it's, um, it's something that I tell myself when I'm programming for athletes because otherwise I'm just filling stuff. And I, that makes me second-guess if I'm just putting stuff in there for the sake of putting it in there. Ah, very good. Very good. It's been absolutely delight to, to talk to you and to hear what you've got to say. It's really great to catch up after these few years. I know you always looked after yourself when we played um, <laughs> and you are an exciting, exciting young player back then. Uh, hopefully you're... <laughs> Hopefully you're still that player. player. (laughs) Um, Andy, would you like to say anything to Foz before we go? No, thanks very much for uh, coming on the podcast, Foz. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Cheers for that. The the energy, what the listeners won't have seen is uh, all of Foz's hand movements and (laughs) um, the the way he had passion and energy despite being on a on an audio podcast it was amazing um, so I'm sorry you guys missed out on that um, and uh, yeah Fod's been amazing and uh, hopefully we'll keep in touch cheers guys thanks very much no worries cheers Fod cheers